Is the second time around truly better than the first? Let's find out as Raimi Revisited hits Spider-Man 2. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome into a new episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We've hit episode 120, and in this week's episode, we will be continuing our series of revisiting Spider-Man movies with Raimi Revisited Spider-Man 2. But before we hit that particular nerd big talk, it's time for... Chris, what are you bringing to the news desk this week? Well, Dave, um, it's interesting because over the last uh, month or so, we have built a backlog of sorts with the beginning of the school year and everything. Um, so as the episodes release, they were actually recorded about two weeks ahead of schedule. So sometimes our news stories can become outdated by the time they're actually released. But Dave, this is definitely one that has an everlasting, evergreen effect on the nerd world i believe and i'm speaking of none other no other event than the twerk scene around the world um <laughs> so she hulk episode three uh just premiered as of the time of this recording and it featured a very high profile cameo from none other than megan the stallion um who cameoed as a shape-shifting first as a shape-shifting um light elf from new asgard who um righteously in in the court of public opinion uh default defunded uh gas bag awful person that everyone hates dennis bukowski out of one hundred seventy five thousand dollars until the real megan the stallion showed up in court uh and then in a post-credits um end scene uh was found to be signing a contract with uh jennifer walter she hulk herself uh, for legal representation, and then having a twerk-off dance party. Now, um, this also further encapsulates the um, very meta, very wink-at-the-camera, very uh, breaking-the-fourth-wall um, motif that was ever-present in the third episode, in, which included um, comments on, on YouTube videos and news features um, that were very reminiscent of actual comments uh, left on social media pages for Marvel Studios. And it came to find out that it was actually based on comments of insecure male viewers who feel incredibly threatened by strong female characters or characters of color rising to prominence. And so uh, it has grown to the point where so many fans uh, that are insecure in their nature have sworn off the MCU forevermore uh, and have conveniently forgotten about Star-Lord's dance-off um, and the gratuitous um, naked butt shots of the Hulk in uh, Thor Ragnarok and most recently of Chris Evans's, or excuse me, Chris Hemsworth's Thor in Thor Love and Thunder. But when a woman does it, Dave, it's inexcusable. Yeah, this is easily one of the most bizarre things that I've ever encountered uh, when it comes to the MCU fandom. I don't know what is going on with people. 
Um, <laughs> really, it is the strangest thing. We've seen uh, so many, you know, humorous things out of the MCU already. You know, you've mentioned Star Lord's dancing, Thor's naked butt, Hulk's naked butt. We've had lots of butts. Um, you know, there's all sorts of humor that kind of is weaved throughout. And then we come across a character, She-Hulk, which is literally known predominantly for her humor in fourth wall breaks. I mean, she did it before Deadpool. Um, and then when you try to put that on the screen, uh, suddenly people get all uh, bent out of shape. I really am quite uh, perplexed uh, by that attitude. I think people need to get over themselves a little bit when it comes to um, you know, humor. Not every joke will land perfectly with you. I thought it was it was fine as a, as a post credit scene. I got a kick out of it. I thought it was actually much funnier when she when she said, "I will kill for you." And, yes, dial it <laughs> and back. And the was like, dial it back. You know that 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 got me more chuckling than the twerking, really. But you know, not every joke will land for every person. Um, but but kind of like losing your marbles because oh my god you know uh, she hulk danced um, i think it's hilarious that some kind of special effects animator had to sit there and literally like animate she hulk twerking i think that 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 must have been one heck of a job um but it's just it's so bizarre the kind of things that people get all bent out of shape for um really just weird man it's it's actually that um it's really funny to do some behind the scenes research of how that cameo came to be um, Jamila Jamil, who's playing Titania in this series, had a previous working experience with Megan Thee Stallion on the HBO Max show uh, Legendary. Um, and Tatiana Maslany is famously a huge Megan Thee Stallion fan. So that was pretty true to life, the whole I will kill for you thing. And that was actually Tatiana dancing with her in the CGI motion capture thing. So that's that's really cool to to find out. Um, but but I'm going to be completely honest here. Um, she who uh, she hook. She Hulk is a new character to me, relatively. I mean, I've seen her pop up in other books that I've read, um, but I haven't read any of her solo work yet. I definitely plan to. Um, but even the least amount of research, or even like as a casual consumer of She Hulk, you know that she fully embraces her sexuality and like is always making these tongue in cheek jokes when it comes to female representation and self-pride and self-representation. So the idea that these people are completely taken aback and clutching their pearls is just the, the height of idiocy. Oh, absolutely, man. I totally agree. All right, Dave, you've got uh, some rumors on the wind. What's happening? Yeah, and I understand that by the time our episode airs that this is going to be old news already, but I think it's interesting to at least mention it. And then in the future, our audience can laugh at our stupidity for believing or not believing these rumors. I think there's still some value in us discussing it. Uh, and that is that some uh, some dude on Twitter by the name of Emmett Kennedy, uh, who according to his Twitter bio is a broadcaster on TalkSport 2, racing's number one podcast. Um is uh, apparently uh, shooting some rumors out into the stratosphere about D23 and, and that there is uh, there's some major um, casting announcements that are supposedly coming. Now, looking back on this, our audience obviously will be able to say, hey, this is true, this is not true, because D23 will already have happened. But I think it's still interesting to look at this list and, and think about, hey... Um, who could these people even play? Uh, who, where would they fit into an MCU situation? Uh, so the rumors include uh, currently seven individuals, uh, John Boyega, Henry Cavill, Jodie Comer, da uh, Daisy Edgar-Jones, John Krasinski, 
Giancarlo Esposito and Denzel Washington. Um, now, so a lot of these people would be absolute catches for the MCU. I'm not quite sure what they would place them. I know that uh, seeing John Krasinski's name on this list is going to make a lot of Fantastic Four fans cringe because nobody was particularly thrilled uh, with his two-second performance in um, uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Um, but I really think it would be interesting for like a John Boyega, a Henry Cavill, uh, a Denzel Washington, a Giancarlo Esposito to actually join the MCU. I know uh, Esposito has been rumored for a while as being in the running for uh, Charles Xavier, which is really fascinating too. Uh, you know, a lot of these faces have popped up before. I know that there was a big movement a while back on social media that Henry Cavill should be Captain Britain. Um, so there, there are some, there are some interesting things here. The question just is at this point: Is there any here, here, Chris? Yeah. So that's it, it's really hard because there's the fun of fan casting, but then there's quote unquote industry experts that claim that they have an inside you know, connection that, that is supposed to, you know, propel them to legitimacy. So that's neither here nor there. So I'm, I'm excited. Just the prospect of these people. I think Giancarlo Esposito would be perfect as Charles Xavier, especially the more you actually read X-Men comics and you see that he's not this, you know, all the more altruistic type of character. And um, he is a bit of a gaslighter. And by a bit, I mean a whole lot. So, um, <laughs> so I'm I'm definitely intrigued. Um, the one that is really catching me out of left field is Denzel, uh, because it doesn't seem like a natural fit. And I think the world of Denzel probably one of my top five performers of all time. I just don't know that it fits anywhere in the MCU. But I would be more than happy to be wrong on that. Yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting and collective list of character of, of of actors. If true, um, you know the MCU would definitely be like leaning into you know you know casting quality people continuously. Although I'm always a little afraid when they're getting you know these huge names that uh, you know the the performance gets a little lost because everybody is just kind of hooked on oh my god it's Denzel in an MCU movie rather than it's this character come to life. So there are. There are things about that that I find worrisome. I, I will say, if I get John Boyega as Cyclops, I will die a happy man. That is such an interesting casting to me. I, I would be very, very interested to see just, that in action. Just switch out the Screaming Ray for Screaming Gene, and you got it. Oh, he's, his audition has, has been completed <laughs> across three movies, it, it appears to me anyways. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's it for Nerd News. Stick around. After this, our first break, we are diving into Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. Does it hold up or is it a giant steaming pile of turdiness? We'll find out together. Welcome back. It is time for a deep dive into Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2 as we continue our Raimi Revisited series in this week's All right, Chris, so as we have done uh, last week with Spider-Man 1, we each have uh, three elements that hold up and three elements that hold hold this whole situation up. So three positives and three negatives. Let's dive right into your first positive. What is something about Spider-Man 2 that you feel totally holds up? It's got to be Rosemary Harris' Aunt May for me. I think she's far and away the best thing about this film. 
um, particularly her speech that convinces Peter to to put the suit back on. Um, I think probably the most notable thing about this film is it's pretty faithful adaptation of Amazing Spider-Man 50, the Spider-Man No More arc. Um, and for Aunt May to be the person that convinces him to, you know, be Spider-Man again, um, albeit with her complete 180 on the character uh, or the hero or the, the persona of Spider-Man. I think that speech that she gives as, as she's packing up moving boxes and everything. And I think it's, I think it's probably the strongest scene in the film for me. Um, you couple that with Peter coming clean about uncle Ben. And that's something that is very rare, even in the comics. I thought that was an incredibly powerful scene and her reaction to that. And then for her to follow that up directly with this scene uh, was incredibly powerful. So she was on upon revisiting this for first time in probably over a decade, um, far and away the most enjoyable element of the film for me. Yeah, you know, most enjoyable element, you know, that's arguable, but you know, I totally right for this uh, version of Aunt May. Um, I was just a little disappointed that there was not more sexual tension between her and Otto Octavius <laughs> when she was when she was being kidnapped there uh, from the bank. Uh, we needed a little bit of that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this version of Aunt May to me is like the one that that sort of leaps from the 616 page a little bit. Now, in more in more recent years, obviously, Aunt May has kind of gone through a bit of a reinvention. And I think a little bit of ultimate Aunt May has kind of snuck into the 616 version. But if you're looking at like classic straight up Aunt May, uh, I, I think this is pretty much the best uh, live action adaptation you're going to get. And, and she totally shines in this movie again. Totally agreed, man. You're not going to have that tension because they, upon revisiting this, this was probably the most interesting observation now is uh, Dr. Otto Octavius is basically Victor Freeze with extra appendages. So um, very much so. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So you definitely didn't have that relationship as you'd see in the comics. What a shame too. All right, Dave, uh, the first element that holds up for you in Spider-Man 2. Okay, so the train scene, specifically um, uh, the fight on top of the train between Spider-Man and Doc Ock, and then, you know, uh, Tobey Maguire's just smelled poop face as he tries to stop this rushing train, <laughs> uh, is is that that whole scene is just, it reeks of tension, the action is great, the special effects hold up, the way Spider-Man moves, I, I've talked a lot about how much I like how uh, Raimi's Spider-Man movies were able to realize Spider-Man's general movements, his poses, his the way he fights, uh, the way he incorporates the webbing into the fight. All of that stuff is so spot on for the, from the comic books. Now, there's a, a different part of the same uh, the train scene that I didn't like so much, but the, the battle on top of the train, I think, totally holds up uh, by modern standards. Uh, and then the train rescue and, and trying to rescue all the people on the train, all of that stuff is is so tension filled it's such a great scene um to me that is probably the 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 best scene in the movie uh not just straight up from like an action perspective um but also um just from the perspective of uh you know creating dramatic tension as, as you know peter's trying to save all these people on the train i think it really works uh incredibly well is it the egregious unmasking as we talked about last episode I think the unmasking is a part of the problem. Uh, there's another part uh, that I want to talk about in my in my holds up holdups a little bit. 
Um, but to me, everything leading up to his collapse is is pretty good. Even the unmasking kind of works in this context because they wanted that Tobey Maguire just smell poop face as he's trying to, you know... It's kind of difficult, I think, to show the strain uh, without the face. So I understand their reasoning here probably more than in a lot of other places where they unmask him. So Yeah, I think I think that's probably a detriment of uh, of the suit design. Uh, and I think subsequent Spider-Man suits uh, don't necessarily have that problem. Um, I know that I made it one of my big bone depicts of the first film. Uh, was the unmasking, but I think this one is probably the one that I can excuse the most, simply because it was something that I like the the New York City of it all, and the camaraderie of New Yorkers and the banding together. Um, now, this is something that probably would not work in 2022 with as much facial recognition software NSA that we have. This is very yeah. it's very 2004. Um, yeah, absolutely, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed the train scene as well, much more than I thought I would. Um, and, and it definitely sold uh, the tension, as you said, and the suspense. And um, it brought me right back in there. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really great scene across the board, man. All right, so what is the, uh, the second thing that you think totally still works in this movie, Chris? Well, I don't know that it's completely fixed, but Peter is very much more Peter in this movie than he is in the first one. He's a creepy incel um potential school shooter suspect in the first movie um and you know he's much more peter as we know him in the second one he gets to flex his science brain muscles um more on that in my next uh element that holds up but i think he's more bumbling idiot um and social awkward socially awkward goofus and doofus in this movie than he is in the first one i think the first one they did not find that perfect harmony and i think they came a long way here in his interactions with the people in his life um and it just felt it just felt more like a match uh, for me in this film i will say that there's definitely some improvement here um i don't know if um, it's completely fixed either. I think there's still a lot of doofus goober kind of stuff going on here. Um, but there is definitely a, a better sense uh, of this Peter Parker as a character um, rather than, you know, a, 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 I don't know, a doofus dweeb caricature almost like he was in the first one. There's a little bit more to him. He feels a little more, more like a fully realized person. I still don't think, compared to comic book Peter, that this is a great interpretation, but it is at least one that feels like a, a real human being to some extent rather than a caricature. I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. I think for me, the thing that gave it the most momentum as far as quote unquote fixing the character was the cluelessness of Peter, because that's something that's very true in every iteration that's, that's done successfully with Peter Parker is he's just, he doesn't get it. Like you even see something like Peter B Parker in, in into the spider verse. Like he thinks he's like making these great strident changes and like, he's still missing the big point. And, and that's something that, that that is shown here um just like he 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 can't see the forest through the trees like he just misses the essence of something because he thinks you know he's giving up spider-man so he can spend more time with people and it's supposed to excuse all of these previous 
you know, shortcomings and all the other times that he's let people down. But like we have one montage of raindrops keep falling on his head and everything is forgiven and he just doesn't get it. And I think that's pretty true to the character. I, I think that's probably that's probably accurate. All right, Dave, what is the second element of Spider-Man 2 that holds up for you? I think the humor lands a little bit more. I mean, we we spend a lot of time deriding the whole, um, you know, lack of quibs and the fact that, you know, he's kind of a little uh, homophobic in that whole wrestling scene um, last week. So I think it's probably uh, fair to say that there is a big improvement here. Um I think there's there's some really funny scenes that that kind of you know tickle the funny bone, like when he loses his powers and he tries to get him back, and he jumps off the building and he's like, "I'm back, I'm back," and he lands and he screams, "Oh my back, my back!" Like that that just worked instantly uh, relatable, um, instantly relatable, yeah, especially for people of a certain age. Not that I'm saying that we're included in that, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> then uh, there's the the scene where he loses his powers and he has to ride the elevator. Um, I absolutely love when he looks at the guy on the elevator and says that the costume rides up in the crotch. I, I just I find that absolutely totally something that Spider-Man would say. So I think I think the humor functions a little bit better here. I still think there's not enough quibbing uh, for it to be really you know comic book accurate, but at least there is uh, and there's something here now. You know, like I, I really feel like there's a, a much, much better sense for what kind of sense of humor this has. The humor does not come across as weird or hokey or anything like that this time around. And I appreciated that. Yeah, I think um, probably now that I, you've caused me to be introspective, um, people ask me all the time, like, why is it, what is it about Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man that you keep writing for? Um, and for me, as someone who is, fluent in multiple languages, including sarcasm. I think the quips of Spider-Man is one of the thing, one of the top three things that draw me to the character and it never felt quite right. It's better here. Undoubtedly. Uh, undoubtedly. Um, but for me, no one has come close to mastering the quips quite like Andrew Garfield. And that, I think that's fair. Yeah. And I think, especially that first film, um, I haven't revisited The Amazing Spider-Man 2 for, insert, multitude of reasons. Um, but that first, that first scene, particularly that one bank robber, when he's like one of his first ventures out in the suit, is just perfect for me. Um, but this this goes a long way in making up that ground. Yeah, yeah. I, I, You know, it's funny that you say that because I think that's probably my favorite thing about Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man as well. When he has that suit on, he'll actually, you know, he he, he will kind of kind of get at you a little bit. You know, he he will he will lean into you and, <laughs> and 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 make you feel like crap about yourself. And that's really what what Spidey does. You know, he uses he uses that as a way of of you know keeping his his opponents off balance. You know. Um, and I know there's been like a tendency of people saying, you know, we need to we, we need to maybe stop, you know, with some of the how mean Spider-Man can get um, in in with some of his quips towards his enemies. And I'm like, you know, maybe not because it's, you know, he's punching them in the face. I think he can punch them with his words as well. Um, and that really works, I think, in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. And, and that's no disrespect to Tom Holland, whose quips are are equally as wonderful. They're just a different vibe I get from him. I think he is that bumbling idiot kind of quipper. And that's funny, too. Yes. Like, it lands for me as well. It's just a different type. I think, um, you know, 
obviously, because it's been well documented, that's based on Ultimate Spider-Man. And so it's a different kind of quips. Andrew Garfield's are much more 616, Peter, versus, you know, you look at those old, like, 70s Amazing Spider-Man or Marvel team-up issues where he's, you know, saying, you know, goofy little nicknames for the for the bandits and, and what have you. But, like, the Ultimate Spider-Man of it all is, like, bumbling idiot and, you know, falling all over himself. Absolutely. Alrighty, Chris. So what is your third and final hole? This holds up for Spider-Man 2. Well, this was a marked change from um, the comics canon for these two characters. But I think that this was like a really interesting take and a, and a change that I, I really enjoyed. And that's the relationship between Peter and Otto. You know, um, very famously, Otto has always been such an antagonist to Peter and Spider-Man as someone who's always foiling his grand schemes and everything. And it's always this antagonistic relationship, but I think the Jekyll and Hyde of Otto's character here and that bond that's created on their love of science and being these scholars and that relationship, I think it really drove a lot of, of cool things home for me. And so like, that is not something that's really based in comics per se, because even when something like superior Spider-Man, it's like, I'm so much better than him. Let me prove how much better I am than him. It's not this pissing contest, if you will. Uh, it's, it's much more born out of um, a camaraderie of, of intellectuals and, and something like that. And I, I really enjoyed the, the scene at, Otto's home with Rosie. I think that was really, really cool. Thing. I think what we're getting here in a lot of ways, Chris, is not Otto Octavius, at least when it comes to his relationship with, with uh, Peter. Uh, you, you made a comparison to Mr. Freeze, and I think that's a really good comparison. I think we're also getting essentially the lizard. You know, yes. you have yes. you have a, a mentor figure, a science bro, who is kind of being controlled by sort of this external force that he can't help into being a villain and and tries to redeem himself, you know, by turning back into who he's supposed to be. I think this is very much uh, the arc of somebody like like the lizard and much less Otto Octavius. However, I really like seeing him and Otto being on, on good footing. I will even go so far as to say that probably my favorite and most interesting thing that is going on in the current Amazing Spider-Man comic books to me is a quote-unquote reformed Norman Osborn trying to have some kind of mentorship yes, relationship with, yes. a P- with a Peter Parker that really doesn't want it. You know, like he's like, I don't trust you, dude. But he's trying to establish this kind of relationship. Except for the lizard, all of these like scientist enemies that he has that he only ever really knew them as as enemies, you know? Um and so seeing that sort of relationship is interesting, seeing seeing him with, with Doc Ock like that, seeing him with, with Norman Osborn like that. It's an interesting, very different dynamic that has not been explored all that much before. So I think that's why it lands so incredibly well in this movie. Yeah, I think and, and um, I think that whole Norman thing is Zeb Wells making chicken salad out of chicken, you know what, with the whole whatever that was with the Sin Eater. But that has been a really interesting thing to watch develop. Oh, absolutely, man. All right, Dave, I'm really interested to dive into your last element that holds up. Okay, so uh, let's let's see how how I can best summarize this. 
I am a huge naysayer when it comes to the notion that Peter Parker must be miserable in order for Spider-Man stories to be interesting. Um, and it gets kind of to the point where it almost becomes obnoxious from certain elements of the fandom that Peter Parker always has to have, you know, absolute misery in his life. I think this movie strikes a really good balance when it comes to the quote-unquote Parker luck, in that we see Peter having struggles um, and things go wrong for him, but also things go incredibly right for him in in other respects. So it's not um, this this menagerie of misery that we constantly have to stare at. You know, like we have this opening scene with the pizza delivery where everything that can go wrong does go wrong, and he you know loses that job. And at the same time, we have, you know, him losing his powers and having to ride an elevator (laughs) as Spider-Man. You know, those kinds of things fit with the idea of the Parker luck. But at the same time, he also gets the girl in the end, you know. And I think that's the kind of balance that you need with a character like him. One of the things that I think that makes Peter relatable is not his age or that he's single or any of those things that Marvel keeps harping on. uh, especially in the comic books, what makes him relatable is that he has real world struggles. He has problems that other people can relate to. You know, how do you, how do you pay the bills? You know, um, how, how do you find a good job? Um, you have a, an, a relative that you love that has health issues. And how do you deal with that? Those sorts of things are universal being, you know, single and unmarried is, is not, um, and having every single thing go wrong in your life is also not relatable. So because, you know, as much as life can suck sometimes, not everything is consistently always going wrong for everybody, right? So that's not that's not relatable. It's a freak show. But I think this movie does a really good job in how it deals with the Parker look and that you see, hey, he struggles and there are things that go wrong for, for him. You know, he loses his job. He loses his powers. You know, there are things that don't work. But at the same time, there are things that also work, you know, his relationship with his Aunt May, uh, you know, getting the girl in the end, so to speak, with his, you know, relationship with Mary Jane. There are things that go well for him. Um, And that I think we all can relate to. Sometimes crap goes horribly wrong and sometimes crap goes wonderfully right. And I think that's the balance that, you know, the quote unquote Parker luck needs in a Spider-Man story. Yeah, I think there were elements of that where I totally agree with you. There are other parts where it leads into my first holdups. Um, but but I it was, it, it did not cross the line too often for me. Yeah, overall, I think it struck a pretty good balance. All right, well, if you if you have a strong response, then let's switch gears and get into our holdups. Uh, what is your first holdup, Chris? Yeah, I think in some respects, there were elements, not just of the Parker luck, but like all of the tropes that were present. It almost felt like they were shoehorning so many of them in. They were trying to cram it all in. You know, the inevitable, Here, here's the problem of um, running out of webs when you have wrist zits. It's like, how do you fix that problem? And then it's just supposed to be this undefinable, oh, do the right thing or have this right amount of inspiration from your girl and then your webs are magically fixed. Um, and then some of the down on his luck part combined, I think, with some of those, it came across as, as a little too tropey for me and it was just... it. it it was a bit overbearing and it took me out of the film a little bit. I think it's fair to say that a good chunk of the movie wallows in tropiness. Particularly, um, that, that particularly is... the first half. 
Yeah, I, th I think there's a, there's a healthy dose of tropiness across the board in all three of these uh, Raimi movies. But I think I think Raimi would say that this it's not tropey. It's it's kind of you know going to universal classic themes that pop up in in stories consistently, almost mythological. Um, I don't think I necessarily agree with that interpretation. I agree that there's definitely some tropey issues here. Um, I, I totally feel this hold up, Chris. Okay, Dave. So I'm going to color outside the lines here. Because your first holdup is pretty much in line on the same web, if you will, of my third one. So let's combine here. Okay, let's let's jump in. Um, the love story still sucks, dude. Um, it, it just does across the board. It, it never quite clicks to the point where the grand finale, where we're supposed to feel good about, you know, Peter and Mary Jane finally getting together. It does not feel very good because it just feels so weird. Um, the relationship between the two never quite feels right. When they're on screen together, there's very little chemistry. There's very little reason for us to think that they should even be together. Um, yeah, we get that reference back to the upside down kiss. We get, you know, oh, now she knows he's Spider-Man, so now she wants him. It's just there's there's so many weird things that are happening here. I think some of this hinges on the writing for Mary Jane. Uh, I, I don't think she's quite right in this movie still, although I think there's at least a little bit of an improvement over the first one. Um, but just as a... They, they, they hang a lot in the Raimi trilogy on the love story. Um, you could almost say that it's supposed to be like a, a love story with superhero action scenes. Like they, they make it a very central conceit in these movies. And it's really sad that even in the best movie of the trilogy, the love story itself never quite coalesces, Chris. Yeah, I think for me, that's all because MJ is still not right. Um, she remains subservient to her male counterparts. I mean, like, except for the end. And like, that's supposed to be enough to carry it through. Like, I love that last speech that she gives because that works don't you should respect me enough i'm paraphrasing but like you should respect me enough to let me make that decision that's great but like the rest of the movie she clings to whatever the men around her are feeling and that's absolutely so tone deaf when it comes to a character like mary jane there's so many spider-man fans that are head over heels in love with mj because she is such a strong character. I mean, how many issues have we had of ASM where she's deep, she's a non-powered individual and she's like rescuing people on the subway or like taking matters into her own hands and saving the day. Like we've had umpteen of those. And, and so I think they go out of their way to try and morph her into this girl next door type of archetype which she's very much not i know in ultimate spider-man she literally is the girl next door but in both iterations she's still a bombshell and even placing her on broadway with this very muted sense of it goes down to her like her clothing and her style it, it's very demure colors she's in a brown dress she's in very blasé colors in the opening scenes it's just completely off base for me with MJ and the rival love interest that we're supposed to see here. It goes from being Harry 
to John Jameson, who is completely a cardboard cutout and has absolutely no life in that character. Oh, oh he is a he is a complete non-entity in this movie. Absolutely, yeah. he's, he's not even a real human being. I mean, it's unbelievable how poorly he's written. And then I think for me, the greatest missed opportunity in this love story is something that was incredibly intriguing from the very last scene of the first film where she kisses Peter and you're you're led to believe that she realizes that he's Spider-Man based on that kiss and that goes absolutely nowhere. And I think it's such a disservice to the character because in the Amazing Spider-Man comics way back in the 70s, I think Jerry Conway was the writer at the time, MJ's not dumb. She figured out he was Spider-Man already. That's what I love about Zendaya's rendition of the character. She's like, I already knew you were Spider-Man. Like, duh. Like, <laughs> it's so great because, like, it's it, it's such a misfire for me. And when you don't have the core of that character right, and I said last episode that she was much more Gwen, and that might be true archetypally, but I think you nailed it, is where she's given no service. She's given the Padme treatment here. And, and maybe that's a 2004, 2005 type of thing. I think Revenge of the Sith was 2005. So this is right in that same line of time where we don't give women, you know, faculty to make their own decisions in a love story. Um, I love your comparison to Padme because I could literally hear Mary Jane saying, you're breaking my heart and then falling over dead. Like I could literally see this happening with this version of the character. And, and, and I similarly, here's another prequels reference. I had heaped so much on the shoulders of Kirsten Dunst as you know, somebody did with Hayden Christensen, but I'm so glad to have revisited this because this is not her fault. When you're given shit dialogue, you can't do anything with it. Yeah, this is just a, a, the saddest part of this trilogy. It's just a misuse of Mary Jane. And, and then we go into a movie in our, in our what will probably be our next episode that we're probably just going to have to call it a fix here. Like not even a revisit. It's just going to be a fix. And you just pigeonhole Gwen Stacy into it. And it's just so lackluster now. Yeah, absolutely, man. All righty, Chris. So what is your second holdup now that we've already wiped out your third? For me, the worst part about this film is James Franco and Harry Osborn. He's cartoonishly awful. Like he 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 went from being a really believable character in the first film to inexplicably a mustache twirling, sinister character here in the second one. It's just it's like hilariously bad. The blonde highlights. It's so two thousand four. He's got the blonde Maxim magazine highlights. He's got. Uh, he's like he, there's there's one element there's one scene where he just um literally throws a temper tantrum and says i'm the boss here and like it's so it's so awful uh i think everything about the character of harry makes absolutely no sense so much so that they had to bring back willem defoe to save him in the end that's, this is actually probably one of the most disappointing things for me across these movies because I thought Harry Osborn actually started out in a really promising place in the first movie. Uh, I, I kind of bought the friendship between him and Peter. Uh, I bought how he felt at the end that he was blaming Spider-Man for his dad's death. All of those things kind of felt like they were going to lead somewhere cool. Um, and I think like Mary Jane was never written particularly well, but I think Harry Osborne's character actually degenerates from movie to movie. 
gets becomes cartoonishly evil in the second one and becomes a whole nother level of cheese in the third it's it's the, it's the character that i think loses the most across the trilogy from a really promising place to absolute useless hokum yeah who can forget the uh the x game snowboard goblin <laughs> jesus christ don't do that to me man <sighs> All right, so Dave, your second holdup is what? Oh my god, do we really need to talk about this? Uh, so for me, um, one of the things that I, I find very sad is that this movie has a tendency of not nailing the heartfelt bits. Um, uh, the, the Aunt May scene that you uh, referenced earlier is, I think, one of the, one of the exceptions. Um, I, I think the biggest... Um, the biggest criminal in this respect is probably the train scene, particularly after Spider-Man passes out and the people on the train pull him in. They do like Jesus cross pose. They lay him down. Then these two kids emerge and like hand him his mask. And I, I know what they're going for. And it it's so, so close to working, but something doesn't work. Um, I think it's, it's, it's just hokey. Uh, it goes a little too far with the imagery. Uh, the kids uh, involved in that little scene are not very good actors at that point. I'm sorry to say. Uh, one kid inexplicably has both hands on his jacket like he's Abraham Lincoln getting ready to deliver <laughs> a speech. There's just so many weird things in that particular scene. And I know it's supposed to be heartfelt. And I know it's supposed to represent uh, the relationship between the regular New York City people and Spider-Man. But holy crap, dude, does it not work? Um, and and that that sense, um, you know, is, is there kind of throughout, you know? Um, every time that they try to go really heartfelt, there's just something off. Um, I would say that the exceptions are the Aunt May scene and the Dr. Octopus scene when he's talking about meeting his wife. I think that the acting there is doing a lot of heavy lifting to make those scenes work. Um but when you're trying to go heartfelt with Mary Jane, when you're trying to go heartfelt on the train with Peter, those things just all kind of fall flat. And I think that's really sad because I think there's a place for heartfelt with Spider-Man. It's just that those scenes to me don't really work in this movie. Maybe if they would have had some Gregorian chants going as they carried Christ across the the multitudes... I, hey, hey, uh, or 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 some some ancient laments like Wonder Woman stuff. <laughs> some of those, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's it's uh, yeah. I I have a I have trouble with messianic characters. I think um, to begin with, they're not as appealing to me because, like, one thing that makes spider-man relatable is he because he has shortcomings, he has fallacies, and then turning him into this deified character is just just so off base i think yeah it's i mean it's bad enough when they when they do it with uh with superman uh who is definitely not a jesus figure i mean if you're going to make any kind of religious uh connection you know considering he was created by you know two jewish people then um it's probably more moses than anything um you know placed in the basket and floated down the river and all that um but but with Spider-Man, it's even further off base. I don't know where this religious imagery suddenly came from, but it was really, really a bad, bad choice. All right, Dave. So I colored outside the lines earlier, so I'm just going to pull an Uno reverse card and go straight to your third holdup. I gotta love Uno. We need to play that sometime, man. It's one of my favorite games. Um, so 
now that you hit me with the reverse card and I don't have one to reverse it back. So uh, let's go ahead and talk about the last shot of the movie. Uh, you brought up something interesting and in that you say that uh, there is an implication at the end of the first one that Mary Jane knows he's Spider-Man, that she figured it out based on a kiss and then that's completely dropped. I think they do something very similar here again, only this time it makes you feel even crappier than at the end of the first one. We're actually leaving Peter Parker in an emotionally really good place. He's finally got the girl. He feels good. He, we do the final swing scene. And then the last shot of the movie is Mary Jane looking out of the window where Peter just jumped out of to play Spidey um, with, with like, I guess, sort of a mournful look, like some trepidation. Now, I really liked that the movie was trying to leave us on a more positive note than the first one this time around. Um, I thought that that was earned uh, through the course of the first and the second movie to kind of have a a positive ending. Uh, So I really hated that look as a way to end the movie. But more so in light of where the third one ends up going, I hate that look even more because much like what they did with Mary Jane in the first one, the implication here is that the source of future conflict between Peter and MJ is going to be her worry for him and the danger that he's constantly putting himself in, which is in line with the comic books. There was a period of time where that was a big uh, bone of contention between the two. I'm thinking like... um, in the lead up to the clone saga, uh, Maximum Carnage had a lot of, you know, back and forth between MJ and Peter about whether, you know, him putting himself out there and in danger, you know, was the right thing to do. Um, and I think that would have been an interesting place to to explore. But instead, what they kind of end up doing is they drop this again in the third one and they go more down the line of, you know, fame has gone to Peter's head in opposition to mary jane's career falling apart and that's the source of conflict which i think is much less interesting um so once again they drop a really interesting end tease um and then they go in the complete really wrong direction from that and i think not only did it at the time in the theater leave a sour taste in my mouth because i thought oh we're, we you know we have a good uplifting ending things worked out for a change you know new conflict to come in the third one and then it kind of leaves you on this sour note with the final shot right after the final swing which is always supposed to be like a really cool moment anyways um but then on top of that you know if you're going to do that if you're going to leave the audience you know uncomfortable at the end of the second movie and then you don't even pick up on that on that sort of train of thought with the with the last one that's that's not good man that's poor planning so i i don't like that scene for a number of reasons that last shot of the movie just kind of pooed all over the place my man yeah and i think it's 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 such a it's such a miss swing to, if you'll forgive the pun because you know we finally at long last after two the length of two entire films we finally have them together and then to kind of to, to sour that i think it's it's just a misstep um but yeah i i'm right there with you because like that could have been so powerful i'm thinking you know you mentioned that maximum carnage era i think that's still david michelini who's writing um and there was a there was a period of time where he didn't even come out of the suit, I think. And, you know, it's it was almost like a like a psychotic break for him. Absolutely. And, I remember that. Yeah. And so it's so such good material to 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 mine. And, and we totally missed that for frosted tips 
Topher Grace and <laughs> God, talk about a moment in time, but that's for next episode. Yeah. So it, it, it is very, very disappointing. Yeah. I, I think that's probably holds true. So given all of those things, Chris, do you feel like the movie still holds up pretty well? Uh, or do you think it's kind of a stinker uh, looking back on it? So I finished this last night and I've spent the last like 12 hours or so really sitting with it. And I think it does hold up very well based on some strong performances, um, particularly from, of course, Alfred Molina and Rosemary Harris. Um, it does have a few things that have not aged well. Um, I do think that it is held up as this untouchable, ineffable thing almost like almost like some of the the fanboys are those people on the train you know carrying uh spider-man 2 across their their hands or whatever and i think that um is is not so much the case for me i i have previously commented to the nth degree that into the spider-verse is a perfect film and it is far and away the best Spider-Man movie. It's the best comic book movie. It's the best superhero movie. Um, I don't know. I would have to really sit and ponder. I don't know that this is even the best live action Spider-Man movie. I, I'd probably have to do some more research and revisiting. Um, it is, it's good. And it was an enjoyable experience. But I don't know that it's, it's still the best live action Spider-Man film. Yeah, it's it, that's it's a complicated question, right? Because as we've uh, mentioned many times previously, um, you know, nostalgia is one hell of a drug, um, and I have mad nostalgia for this movie. Uh, it's difficult to separate the movie from the the time period in my life that the movie represents, um, and I really, really loved this at the time in the theaters. I had uh, a lot of love for this movie. I, I can't lie. Um, I will also say, however. Um, that to me, it's very clear that this this has more warts than I remembered. Uh, I think that certainly storytelling has changed since back then. I think that uh, the, what they do with the love story and particularly how they serve female characters um, is not not great. Um, but there's also still a lot to love in this movie. I think it's still a worthwhile endeavor. Um, it's very weird because... Um, I guess the best way to describe my enjoyment of this movie is, you know, I, I have, um, I have a big love for like, um, classic Hollywood movies, like the golden age of Hollywood. You know, I really, I really love some of those 1950s romantic comedies. Even, um, I love, you know, movies with, from Alfred Hitchcock. I love, I love movies featuring Doris Day. Um, I have, I have a big wide streak of like loving old movies, but at the same time, every time I watch them, I have to very carefully place them in the, within their historical context in order to have any kind of enjoyment out of them. Because by modern standards, you know, the way women are treated or written uh, is always very weird. Uh, there's a lot of, of social mores that have changed. And so as long as I can put, you know, the movie within its historical place, um, I can really enjoy it. Um, and I think something very similar has happened with the Spider-Man movies, even though Spider-Man 2 is now you know, it's less than 20 years old. But I think a lot has changed. Um, and if I place it within the context of those, you know, sort of early early 2000s, um, I, I can forgive a lot of things, I, I think. 
Um, but if I just watch it straight up as a movie now, I think there's a lot of stuff that I don't enjoy in it. Like when I think of the first movie, for example, how big can you make an American flag? And why would you have patriotism so intrinsically linked to Spider-Man, a character that is not particularly patriotic? Um, well, because we're talking about post 9-11, uh, you know, the United States. And of course, there had to be a ginormous American flag that's like 20 stories tall, because why not, right? But but in, in hindsight, that seems weird and hokey. So as long as you place this movie within the context of the of the early 2000s, I think there's a lot to enjoy here. So I think um, if you are willing to forgive some of the early 2000s-ness of the movie, there's still something worthwhile here, Chris. Yeah, I think it also depends on what do you want from a Spider-Man movie. And the 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 camp that I have seen mostly that's not toxic or anything um, always harken back to this is directly from Lee Ramita or Lee Ditko era. And for me, I think it's just a matter of personal preference. I much... I think I much um, prefer taking those core elements and then perhaps like a reinterpretation. And I think that's probably why I enjoy the Tom Holland films as much as I do. Um, particularly, I think I go up for Far From Home a lot more than most folks do. I think Jake Gyllenhaal is fantastic as Mysterio. And it's such a smart interpretation if you'll forgive the Tony Stark of it all, I think it's such a smart interpretation of what a Mysterio type character would be in the modern era. Um, and so I, I don't need a direct lift from comic books. If I want that, I'll just go read the comics. So I much prefer like a little bit of a twist on characters, not out of its way to, so it's not, you know, no longer recognizable. But I think it's just a matter of personal preference for me. I think that's fair, man. All right, well, there you go. That's uh, our look back at Spider-Man 2, directed by Sam Raimi. What do you think of the movie? Find us on social media. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at NerdByWord, or individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. Let us know how you feel about this movie almost 20 years later. After a quick break, we'll be back with our nerd commendations. So stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, it's time for that special time in our episode when we recommend some new nerdy media to you. That's right, it's time for... Chris, what are you nerd commending to our audience this week? Well, we've both got a couple of Prime Video series that we're nerd commending. Mine, of course, is The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, the much uh, anticipated, the long-awaited adaptation of the work of Tolkien. This takes place in the second age of Middle-earth um, and features a varied cast of characters from their point of view very reminiscent of something like game of thrones where you're following five or six characters and their individual arcs and adventures um and i'll just be blunt i absolutely love it i think it is inventive i think it's expansive i think it's innovative i think it is much needed um all due respect to peter jackson i think it is much needed to get another creative voice with these characters um this is set about this is set thousands of years before the events of the hobbit and the lord of the rings 
Um, and it just feels so much more approachable, so much more um, open than than Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Um, I think that I think his 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 iterations of the Lord of the Rings film franchise is very exclusive to hardcore fans, and that makes it not as easy to dive into for the first time. But I think this is much more wide open and universally identifiable. Um, I, I'm really intrigued in these characters, particularly Morfid Clark's Galadriel. Galadriel is one of my all-time favorite characters in in Tolkien to begin with, and just seeing her in completely in her element as an elven warrior um, who is desperately trying to stamp out the presence of evil in Middle Earth in this never-ending. Um, you know, crusade of sorts is really, really interesting. I think Ismael Cruz Cordova's Erendir um, um, is really interesting as well. I love this budding romance, this forbidden love with uh, Bronwyn, who's a human, um, a single mom, shouts to single moms and their love lives um, is really, really interesting. And, you know, the, the subsequent adventures that they're going on. So the first two episodes at the time of this recording premiered together um, and were both very, very high quality. The cinematography is out of this world. It's absolutely majestic. Um, they did not blow this money on. Uh, they did not skimp. You know, they paid over uh, upwards of a billion dollars to make five television series i think um so there's gonna be eight episodes in this first season of the rings of power and i'm heavily invested i think you know as much as i nerd commended house of the dragon uh last week this is a good deal better quality of of a series and i cannot wait for more yeah so somebody like me who always struggled to get into the lord of the rings do you think this is accessible enough to for somebody like me to be able to try to enjoy it yeah i think so i don't think that this relies on a lot of deep lore or anything of that nature i think this is pretty easily approachable well then i might have to go ahead and give this thing a shot because i hear a lot of good things particularly about the cinematography and the like for it and so i'm i'm very very uh i'm very interested because again you know i like I like fantasy, but I've always struggled with finding fantasy that uh, I connect with easily. And so I would really, really like to, um, I'd really like to find some more besides The Witcher that uh, that resonates with me and resonates with me uh, easily. So if, if this has a shot of doing that, then I'm definitely going to give it a give it a chance. And I, th- I think one of the added benefits of this being a prime video series as well, you know, Tolkien properties are not the easiest to keep up with names and characters and and the like, but X-ray vision is such a godsend to me. Um, And so to be able to just pause and see the characters that are in the scene so you can remember names much easier. Some people see that as very clanky and, you know, not helpful, but for me, it's a godsend and I absolutely love it. Yeah, that sounds good, man. All right, Dave, sticking to prime video. What's on your watch list though? Yeah. So um, I, uh, a couple of weeks back, kind of went on a a very i will freely admit sort of stream of conscious rant about my love of the comic book paper girls and how it emotionally affected me and how i felt um the the bittersweet nature of the journey of these four paper girls from 1988 and their time travel adventures and how it all wraps together um and how how much i absolutely love this 30 issue series well lo and behold here we are 
uh, it's actually an, uh, an adaptation on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, there are, I believe, eight episodes. I have so far watched four. And I have to say, uh, holy smokes, uh, th- this is really good. Uh, does the uh, series take liberties with the source material? Absolutely. Does it go into some different directions, change up some stuff? Absolutely, as most adaptations do. However, what I find so great uh, about this um, this show is that it is very, very true to the characters. Um, I think it does a really, really good job of, of capturing you know the the four core characters um you know you have aaron kj tiffany and mac and each character feels like the character from the comic book kind of you know come to life uh the writing is really strong and it really captures those characters and what they're like and their interactions and their dynamic as a group um i think huge credit has to also go to the casting department here because whoever cast those girls did just an impeccable job. Uh, Riley Lay Nalette is fantastic as Aaron Tiang. Uh, 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 Fina Straza is KJ all over. I mean, it's absolutely perfect. Cameron Jones does a great job uh, as Tiffany. But man, I have a soft spot even in the comic book for the character of Mac. Uh, this this foul-mouthed tomboy who has to come face-to-face with her own mortality. And lo and behold, Sofia Rosinski nails this character and and left me almost a puddle of tears by the end of the fourth episode. Just absolutely flawless casting and flawless acting on those four girls. I'm very interested to see how they're going to adapt some of the more um, science fiction, you know, special effects heavy elements. They threw a couple of smaller things already up there and they worked pretty well. Um, but it's, it definitely, get, I definitely get the sense that they're, they have a great, um, a great sense of the characters and who they are for this show. And so even if they go off the beaten path of, of how the story unfolds in the comic book, um, so far they're staying very true to those characters. And and alone for that, I think this is super worthwhile. So I, I love this. And I, I really hope that there's going to be um, more. Uh, I'm going to finish the first season. I'm only halfway through. And hopefully uh, they're going to, you know, adapt the whole thing and tell a complete story rather than get, you know, Netflixed after only one season because what's here uh is, is really really strong chris yeah i'm really excited to check this out um i think i started the first episode and got about 10 to 12 minutes in before i got distracted by something else but i enjoyed what i saw and so i'm, I'm definitely planning on diving back into this one it's it's all in the characters man i don't know how to how to make that clear that the story is interesting and they they go through a lot of interesting stuff but but it's all about the characters and how how they relate and how they interact. This is a character piece more than anything. And if you, you know, if you if those those four core girls resonate with you, you're you're in for an interesting ride. Alrighty, folks, that's it for episode 120 of the Nerd Byword podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard this week, please. Find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating, a review, subscribe so you never miss a wonderful episode of our podcast. Um, We are available wherever podcasts can be found. Spotify, TuneIn, Radio, Apple Podcasts, and of course, our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com. And as always, hit us up on social media if you want to interact with us at nerdbyword on Twitter and Instagram, and individually, that nerd David, that nerd Chris. And you can follow the link in our bios 
to all of our different pages, including our Discord server, if you want to chat it up with us, or get some really fancy schmancy merch on our TeePublic or Redbubble websites. But always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.